Hello, welcome to Sock Talk with JNAB and the Sundance Kid. We are going to explore the frontiers of technology, art, and the human experience. I'm Jamie McDonald, lecturer at School of Computing, and with me is John N. A. Brown, also a lecturer at the School of Computing. So today we were thinking of talking potentially about human-computer interaction and specifically thinking about where it might go in the immediate future. So for context, uh, my background, I've done a bit of work with VR in the past. I've made VR experiences. So I've got some experience, at least in terms of creating virtual reality content. And I've also designed interfaces for apps and websites. And then, John, you've got a rich history, so it's maybe worth for context. Okay, well, uh, yeah, for context, um, I've done a fair bit in that. I've worked for some gaming companies. Um, I've worked for a number of uh, other companies. I spent the last, before coming here six months ago, I spent the last six and a half years in Silicon Valley consulting with uh, companies nobody's ever heard of, like Facebook, and Google, and, uh, Amazon. Um, so uh, uh, I've spent a lot of time working on human-computer interfaces of many different sorts, um, from augmented reality and virtual reality uh, through to standard interfaces like the various keyboards and mice, or mouses, as I prefer. Nice, good. Well, um, so hopefully we might at least have something interesting to say on the topic. Uh, yeah, so I don't know, where do we want to start? So recently, just as an to initial talking point, uh, we're we're at, at this time when we're speaking and releasing this podcast. Apple have just recent, recently released their Apple Vision, which is a VR slash AR slash mixed reality <laughs> headset, and they're calling their whole interface spatial spatial computing. Um, so they don't have any controllers; it's all your hands, and you're looking around the interface, and then you pinch to select things, which is uh, fun and interesting, but. What I thought was interesting about that is looking at, I mean, I've not used one yet, but all of their interfaces are two-dimensional windows, obviously, because for many, many decades now, we've all been trained to interact with 2D windows rather than three actual true three-dimensional interfaces. There was a period, there was a period where people were trying that, right? Three-dimensional interfaces. I remember in Jurassic Park specifically, when the Velociraptors are about to come into the uh, the room, you see, I can't remember the girl's name, but she's sitting on the computer interface and the folder file structure is a three-dimensional file structure. And she's going along this horizon and then finding the right file to lock the doors or whatever. And it seems to me there's that, there, that was a pathway that just kind of stopped at that time. Because if you're on a 2D screen, I guess 2D interfaces are, I mean, there's a bit of depth because you can overlay windows, but it's not truly a three-dimensional space that we're taking advantage of. And I wondered if we're speculating on the future, like I say, it seems like they've taken shortcuts right now because it makes sense to just have floating 2D windows because we're all accustomed to that. But I wonder in the future if there's, are we missing out on a potential better interface with it being three-dimensional? That's a great question. Um, it, it's. It's got a couple of points in it that I'd like to discuss. So um, are we missing out on things that could be better? Yes, uh, that's the entire history of technological development for any product that gets used by multiple people and tested and proven or disproven in the market. Um, 
the the history of uh, consumer products is full of examples. Uh, you're probably coming up with your own right now of products that were beaten in the market by things that were inferior. So um, are we missing out on something? Yes. Is it something we should be missing out on? Maybe also yes. Uh, the 3D interfaces, and I, I always think of uh, the Iron Man uh, films, mm -hmm. where there's so much of that in his engineering mode when he's sh we're, sh we're seeing that the great inventor, uh, Stark, is, is uh, thinking deeply. He's interacting in, in uh, three dimensions with the light around him. Um, the problem with doing that is that we, we have spatial models in our brain of the world around us and the amount of space things take. And that's what enables us to do things like reach for a drink and not knock it over. Um, to uh, be able to interface with something without looking at it because it's familiar. These three-dimensional models of the world around us interact unconsciously with three-dimensional models of our own shape. And so the map you have of your hand and where it is in space as you move it intersects with the model you have of, or the map you have of the coffee cup you're currently using. And unconsciously, those two models have to overlap and work together for you to be able to reach out and pick up your drink. When the model is incorrect in one way or another, that's when you knock the drink over. There's also other reasons that people knock drinks over, but that's one reason. And the discomfort created by being uncertain is worse than the discomfort created by knocking it over because everybody makes mistakes. But if you're constantly afraid of making mistakes, you're uncomfortable. I, I think that's one problem with this kind of uh, 3D interface of intangible light fixtures around us. Uh, if they were tangible, then you'd be able to knock against them and figure them out unconsciously, right? The same way you can reach over and consciously take a look at the thing you're going to pick up and pick it up and examine it a bit consciously or unconsciously. Just by running your thumb and fingers over it, you, you gain an idea of the shape of it. Um, but you can't do that with, with uh, 2D displays inside a visual screen. So I, I guess what I'm saying is it won't be intuitive until mm -hmm. people work to make some kind of training material that will make it intuitive. But for our generation, it's going to take practice for it to become intuitive. Yeah, I guess it also depends on what the objective is and what we're talking about. Because, for example, if your objective is to make content in 3D or even just position things around in three-dimensional space, um, <clears throat> say you take your average grandma into a room, open up Blender and ask them, and have to teach them how to move a square from one point in space to another point in space. You're going to have to tell them how, maybe even you have to use a mouse and keyboard, depending on how familiar they are with a computer. Um, but even that, the process of clicking on the square, then you've got three axes, you've got to move it along one dimension, move it along another, and then move it up, or however such you might do it. Whereas if you stick a VR headset on them and just tell them, this is grab, and this is release, they can immediately grab it, put it over there. Yes and no. It, 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 and I don't want to be argumentative, but they can immediately grab it and put it over there if the visual cues that have been created to describe the 3D space intuitively to the user are, th are cues, visual cues that they recognize. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they are. Uh, simple things like a grid work 
can work really well in saying this is a flat surface and here is a, a sur flat surface that's parallel to it but on a different elevation. Don't use the word elevation, don't use the word parallel, yeah. just let them see it and interact with it and a lot of people will figure that out. The, um, the thing is, if their visual model is different than the predominant visual model of the people who designed and approved of that design, then it's not going to work for them regardless of instruction. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I missed a lot of context that I would have, <laughs> I've got this, I've got this imaginary scenario in my head and I've not explained all of the context. Um, yeah, I would, I would be imagining something where you stick the headset on and for the most part and your standard VR experiences now, you can see your controllers as representations of hands. And I'm imagining, sure, you give them some cue of like a table or whatever, a surface over there. And then once they stick the headset on, they're seeing the full three-dimensional space, a, a cube there and a table there. And you've told them this is grab with your hand and they can see where their hand is in space. And so they'd be able to do this and do that. And then in Blender, I would be, or whatever 3D software, I'd be imagining the same thing. It's just the different, different controls in order to do it. Yeah, the, the problem is, a, uh, as you've described it, I think, and, you know, just tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm wrong all the time. I, I, I expect that, and knowing me as well as you do, I hope you expect it now, too. Um, the problem is one of visualizing oneself at the controls. And tasks like picking something up and putting them down, we don't think of as requiring control. They're unconscious tasks that we perfected when we were infants, unless you've had a neurological injury and have had to regain control. There's something you don't think about deliberately. So I've, I've even seen it where people put on the, the VR headset or stand in the VR booth and then say, whose hands are those? Right. Okay. right, because it's clearly not their hands. They know what their hands look like, right? So you, you have to do something to frame it. Fortunately, the framing can all be, or almost all be unconscious. And that's what, what will make it feel intuitive after they've done some unconscious framing. If, if they have, um, if you put somebody in that situation you're describing and then you say to them, I'm, I'm just busy here, could you uh, just push that box a little further away? Uh, yeah, that one, that box there, if you could just push it, maybe use your left hand. Yeah, if you could just put, and just give them a task to do like that and get them to do a few things like that while you're busy elsewhere, then they'll unconsciously start defining for themselves what the environment is and how they can interact with it then it'll start to feel intuitive once they've done that enough, right? But um, if, if you assign them a deliberate task, some people will get it right off, some people won't get it right off, and that'll be based largely on what they know and what they don't know about these kinds of environments. Okay, yes. I guess ultimately what I'm speculating here in the argument I'm making is that if you have someone from scratch who's experienced the world all their lives until a certain point in their life. My, my, my only speculation here, or what I'm arguing, is it's probably easier for the stick the headset on and do that rather than train them how to use them as a computer. Yeah, because yeah. the controls are more abstract. Yeah, yeah. so um, that's, that's what I'm saying, is maybe the potential for more intuitive, coming closer to reality, so closer to reality of like, I understand, I can move this over here and now that's in that space. And that whole interaction was completely closer, mapped closer to yeah, yeah, reality sure. than yeah. a, a mouse and keyboard. I, I agree with you. The only thing that would interfere with that would be familiarity with an existing abstraction. So, for example, um, 
when you're steering a car. Steering a car is one of those really complex things that nobody thinks about once they learn. And once you've learned it, you try to act like it wasn't at all complex to learn uh, because you don't want to sound like it was hard for you to drive. Um, but the wheels are turning in a particular plane. And turning in that plane means they move along a perpendicular plane. When you turn them, you want to rotate them in a, a perpendicular plane. Again, you want to rotate them around an axis that's perpendicular to their rotation and to the plane they're traveling across. But the controller we use for doing that isn't aligned with any of those planes. Instead, it's offset at a largely undetermined angle. And the control of turning is unrelated geometrically or intuitively unrelated to the amount of rotation. Mm -hmm. So in some cars you turn more, in some cars you turn less. None of it is actually turning in the direction, really, that you want the wheels to turn. But we learn this complex abstraction and then pretend it was never there. Yeah. Um, so when you take someone from learning, from knowing how to drive a civilian's car and put them in a light armored vehicle where the or heavy armored vehicle, where the, the steering is done entirely differently, they're lost. They have the paradigm of holding their hands up to steer, right? They have the paradigm of rotating a wheel, but they don't know how to rotate it without spinning out, right? And um, yeah, I, I, I used to give the example of when cars were first introduced to the public, there were two, uh, what three major ways of steering them, right? One was like a ship's rudder. Yeah. One was the steering wheel, and another one was two separate controls to go forward or, or pause. Um, I believe that the reason the steering wheel caught on was because it allowed people to hold their hands in a way that signified to them conceptually that they're drivers, because that's where you hold the reins of a horse, mm. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the idea of putting your hand down below and steering like a rudder, I don't think the direction was any more confusing to anyone. But yeah. It just didn't mean your hands were in front of you like someone who's driving a team. That's interesting. Okay. So I'm, we're not even disagreeing anywhere at all here. Okay. To bring it back to um, interfaces, this is where I'm wondering. So we've all been, well, the most of us that use computers every day, we're all now completely accustomed to this two-dimensional screen and a mouse to navigate all sorts of complex information and do all sorts of complex tasks. How much are we restricted by that legacy? Yes, we're all trained with it and know how to use it now, but <laughs> it makes sense to always make interfaces that work with it because we have that legacy and it means less training to use a system. Then, yeah, that's, so this is the argument of how... Not how do we move people away from it, but just literal speculation on what could a different system look like in the first place. Well, around the time that uh, Ivan Sutherland and his folks uh, came up with the uh, uh, sketchpad. Sketch yeah, they were trying to figure out how to have a screen that you could touch and um, you could interact with directly without having to have another controller. So around the time they were doing that, other people were working on developing the first computer mouse. Uh, do you know the story of the mouse? I vaguely. Yeah, so the, the, the folks who invented it, and I should be able to recall the man who's always credited for it, I can't right now, and also the man who actually built it. <laughs> I should be able to recall both, I can't right now either. We can put it in the footnotes yeah, of the podcast with an apology. Just put it on the screen. Yeah, or here, I'll just do this. 
and there you can dump it over so people won't think I'm so forgetful. Um, <laughs> please don't do that. I think the the, the I'll bad use a, lip sync I'll, is I'll use a computer. Anything. I'll use a AI voice generated, so it sounds <laughs> completely awkward. Excellent. Yes, if you could make it sound like Troy McClure, yeah. that would be best. Um, sorry for the level jump. Uh, so. This guy had been working, um, as I understand it, in visualization of uh, 2D representations of radar data and sonar data. And his job had been to um, create overlays of this data so that pilots could fly through the mapped terrain of enemy territory, uh, based entirely on uh, conceptually stacking 2D scans. Um, and he thought it would be a cool idea if folks could do the same thing um, to uh, navigate through data. And so he talked about it and didn't want to use a joystick for, for well, there's, there's apoc apocryphal reasons for it. I don't know what the real one is, but didn't want to use a joystick. And so uh, in talking with the technician and some other folks came up with this idea of taking a chunk of wood and hollowing out the bottom and putting in two perpendicular wheels. Yeah, so it's it's cool. You see the little red light to let them know it's active and the wire coming out of the back. And red light on one end, wire coming out of the other is why it's called a mouse. Um, it was a chunk of wood that was rubbed on a desk. So saying that rubbing a chunk of wood on a desk is the best way to interact with a computer is, is kind of silly. And yet here we are, yep. wireless, still rubbing a chunk of something on a desk, like with the steering wheel using an abstraction that moving this on this surface is going to move something on a different surface, right? Oops, there we go. I can, I can visualize that more easily than I can practice it, right? Because like you say, I'm familiar with visualizing that kind of movement. Um, but it's a silly, silly thing. And the folks who were working on touchscreens had a much better idea in much the same way that you were saying, being able to actually see your hands and move things as though you were moving things in real space is a better idea. Will we get away from the mouse? Um, I think eventually. Eventually there will be people born who have never used a mouse and go through their lives using computers without ever using a mouse, the same way that there are now people who have been using computers all their lives and have never used a keyboard. Well, there's the phrase um, iPad kids and you see um, kids who've grown up more with iPads just navigate interfaces like you can't believe. Just <laughs> Absolutely. I think a huge portion of why they look so fluent in that, uh, fluid or fluent, I guess both work. Um, if I hadn't pointed out my own mistake, probably no one would have noticed it. The reason they look so fluid and fluent um, is because they're willing to make mistakes out of it. Um, my generation and the generation before it especially grew up knowing that if you touch an electronic device the wrong way, you break it, right? So you can't make mistakes. Um, teaching uh, my parents, both of whom became comfortable with computers, especially my mother, quite comfortable, um, teaching them to use a mouse and a, a, a keyboard and uh, different computers over the years, it was always a task to just let them feel comfortable that, yeah, the mouse can fall on the floor. Yep, it you press the wrong keys and something happens, we can backtrack. Um, that, that was contrary to their idea of how complex or expensive machinery works. These kids have no concept of that. They break things constantly. And one of the reasons it works well on an iPad is because it's hard to actually do something that breaks things. It's really easy 
to go aside on YouTube and end up watching something your parents do not want you to watch. And nobody in their right mind would want you to watch. And I mean literally in their right mind. Um, but uh, so that happens much more often than they break something. Uh, but yeah, that, that fluency of touchscreens and uh, really multidimensional touchscreens because they're layering things one on top of the other. Um, that fluency is built into their brains from an early age. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go uh, bring it back to something I've thought about, which is I'll even argue against my own case <laughs> of um, fluid interactions. Of the, there was, there was my, you remember Minority Report is doing all this. Great, exactly going like all over like here doing this this and that and as another so there's a lot of physical motion involved here from doing that to that now if you see when you need high performance and high communication like you need the bit rate to be faster between the human and the computer you want to reduce that you don't you want more twitch rather than yes. extending out right we have formula one car drivers who Yes, in normal cars, you've got to turn the wheel a couple of times to lock. Formula One drivers are like, this, this is lock. Because for them, every millisecond matters. And so then, even in VR, sure, we're, we're making interfaces again. But well, I guess that's why maybe why Apple were not going with controllers moving things around. It's just literally your eyes. They'll look around and then pinching. So, I mean, I've not used it yet, but I would imagine you can maybe, if you're using your eyes, you can really start navigating quite quickly can there's a history of that that goes back quite a ways for eye tracking used for navigation there was a project for a long time uh, funded by the national research council of canada uh, directed by a gentleman whose name i'm not going to repeat because i'm about to insult the project uh, that had a small uh, diode of some sort i forget if it was attached to the tip of your nose or to the chakra point between your eyebrows but it was one or the other, and the idea was that uh, as you looked around, you would steer your, your cursor around a, a regular computer monitor, which was absolutely hilarious until you were having a conversation with someone or thinking deeply or had to sneeze or yawn, in which case while you were typing and doing that, all of a sudden you're typing in the wrong window, right? Um, so this thing that was supposed to be extremely intuitive instead required constant concentration in ways that the designer hadn't conceived. And I think that's what happens with, um, with these kinds of site-based uh, 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 steering controls. And not just with those, with any other kind of steering control. What you have to remember is that a lot of really great ideas about computing come from labs where a group of young, wealthy white men coming from a privileged background work together. And sometimes there's some racial mixing there, if you'll pardon my using a truly disgusting phrase. Sometimes there's people of different economic backgrounds there, but that's even more rare. Uh, occasionally one of these labs will have a woman or three working in them. And uh, all of that is getting better. Representation across genders, across, uh, across uh, cultural backgrounds and uh, skin pigmentation is all getting better in those environments. But the limited range of mental models at play means that they tend to end the filtration system of when how complaints get dealt with in an organization that's largely ego driven those two things conspire to create products that look really cool and are really really hard for most people to use so i would argue for instance that that minority report style pull out the drawer filter through open up a file put the contents over here that kind of stuff is a better interaction 
than the tiny movements of the hands. It's a better interaction because it requires you to be more deliberate about what you're doing. And the eye tracking, I'm going to look over here, now I'm going to look over there. That eye tracking is exactly the opposite. Have you ever heard of a cicade? Right? So then you know cicades are these really, really small eye movements that happen all the time. So I've been, I, I've not used it, but I would imagine they've got the error correct for that sure pretty they well. Do. If yeah. they didn't, they wouldn't have gotten yeah. past the first experiments, or at least not past the second. So how are they correcting for that? Are they correcting for that by averaging out? Are they correcting for that by separating the data into two groups of data? Eye on target, eye off target? What, what algorithmic process have they conceived of that would say this is when an eye is under conscious control and this is when it isn't? Because I'll bet that they're not accounting for all of the times eyes aren't on, under conscious control. Yeah, from what I've heard, again, I've not used it, so I'm wildly yeah. <laughs> talking same, same about it. Yeah. Um, we, we might get one in the future, but our budgets are... We don't have them right, you know. <laughs> Maybe we'll get one. Actually, um, uh, any sponsors? Yeah, yeah, uh, give us... A, please do... Uh, Send Jamie uh, seven yeah, or eight of these kits. Please. Uh, um, but from what I've heard of people using it, um, at the start, it can take a bit of getting used to because you don't realize how often, at least with our current machines and systems, that you are actually looking away from what you're doing, but your hands are still typing or doing something. Um, but then I've heard people like after a few hours, you, you get used to it and you start navigating pretty well. So I, I, I can't speak to anything more than that. I guess it all comes back to what your objective is, because for the example that I used with the Formula One driver, you want the stream of communication to be as quick as possible. Video games are a good example as well. So in esports, you know, controllers came along. We had mice and keyboards, and then we had the controller come along, hands on a device pressing buttons, and that's evolved throughout the years to the point now where. If you pick up an Xbox or PS5 controller, they're really, really nice. It's a solid, nice feel to hold. And it's just, they've, like, it used to be the case where it hurt for even after a few minutes holding, holding like a NES controller or something like that. But now they're ergonomically, it's like the evolution wise of just a shape being formed to the point where it's really, really comfortable now. Good, good research and good implementation and yeah. lots of iteration. Absolutely. So comfortably lying back on a chair in a casual couch, yeah, sure, you're sitting along playing on a controller. Meanwhile, in esports, it's always still a mouse and keyboard because for first-person shooters specifically, mouse is still the best interaction for looking around a screen where you're in control of where you're looking. It still turns out the mouse is the way to go, WASD specifically, that, that controller layout. And you don't, I don't hesitate to say, but I'm pretty sure um, there aren't, major esports players who are using a, a controller and the reason for that is accuracy as well people are way more accurate with a mouse and keyboard rather than that's so this is actually another interesting fact when um microsoft released the xbox first time sony beforehand on the playstation 2 had figured out dual analog sticks right. so rotate using your getting your thumb rotation for rotating things around but they hadn't really figured out first-person controller with dual analog sticks yet. It was Halo, specifically the first Halo game, where they figured it out. They cracked it, which is strafe with one uh, stick. So that means you push forward, you go forward, strafe left, strafe back, and then the other to rotate and look around. 
And then that's now completely default for all first-person games you'll play in a, in a video game. Halo was the first. They figured it out. Before that, you had GoldenEye on the N64, which was, like, really awkward to control. You'd have to, like, go around like this. You'd have to, like, stop and then aim and all this. But then Halo, they figured it out. But then even still, all that... Why? Meanwhile, all that was happening, I forget. Doom was a little bit different, but then... I don't know. I, can't, I don't know which was the first game to fully map out FPS the way that we have them now in, in video games on PC. But it's pretty much the go-to. What I'm saying here, I guess, my argument here is that it's still when speed matters and accurate, fast communication. Turns out mouse and keyboard is still very good. So, and I think it's also because they'll they'll turn their DPS on the mouse kind of high or low. They all have their different options. But it's you're wanting to minimize the movements as much as possible. I remember when there were I saw a prototype of a keyboard from I don't know it's like the '60s or '70s where he's got his hand on a just on a device and he's like pre doing combinations of buttons for different letters. Uh, and I guess the argument was if just through Twitch you can in theory get faster. But obviously to learn that is significantly harder. So. Yeah, I guess ultimately the point here is that <laughs> I guess the point is that there's there's a balance to be had between speed but training potentially. Yeah, there's the the thing about um, bringing in esports or bringing in Formula One racers is that these are people who are performing a high concentration task, where ideally they're teetering between being in flow and being fully focused. So being in flow in a way that they're completely distracted from reality and being fully focused on the reality around them. And they, they have to be a, an interesting balance of both, a, a state of flow that most people uh, don't realize until you become an expert at something. Um, and that could be anything. That could be uh, slicing a banana for your cereal. That could be skiing downhill. Um, people are experts at different things, but the level of expertise and focus there is unusual, and the ability to transition into it is unusual, uh, and I, I think happens through practice. But um, there is a reason why the advances in steering wheel control that you were describing for Formula One drivers haven't translated to the real world. You know car companies would love to be able to say, we use the same steering system as, right? They'd love that. But the reason it hasn't translated is because the demands are entirely different. You do not want a super responsive steering wheel. For a long time, that was flipping over minivans, the fact that the steering wheel was too responsive for uh, the equilibrium of the vehicle, given that they had a, a higher-than-usual truck-style body sitting on top of a lower-than-usual car-style chassis. Um, this made the things likely to flip over, especially at speed, if the front wheel turned. <laughs> right? Um, so that kind of real-world danger um, can come into play with things as simple as the controls of the computer. If you use a regular computer uh, keyboard and mouse um, every day, uh, say for schoolwork, whether you're preparing it or answering it, um, it's very possible that you'll get carpal tunnel syndrome. It's very possible, especially if you're unfortunate enough to follow the specific ergonomic guidelines that are always given for both tools. Um, you're, you're running a great risk. When you're driving a Formula One car, you're not at risk of that. 
you're using the tools in a very controlled way and very deliberately. And the time that you're not behind the wheel, you're training to be behind the wheel. You're training your mind, your reflexes, your body to be prepared for being behind the wheel. Um, it's the same thing with esports to, I hope, a lesser degree. Maybe now with the financial backing involved, it's the same kind of thing. But folks who play esports spend their downtime training like mad to be the best possible player, learning the games, learning the moves, learning their options, but also physically conditioning themselves to be able to hold a controller, right, which is vastly less uncomfortable than it used to be, but is still uncomfortable, whether it's the, the new ergonomically shaped mouse. And if the sarcasm didn't come through there, I, I hope you can pick it up now. Uh, the, the ergonomically shaped mouse and keyboard, or whether it's the other controllers that they're using, um, they still have to physically condition themselves for the extreme use of it. So it's quite different from the player who's sitting on the couch. That kind of physical and mental preparation means that you could change the, the interface to a huge degree. And the people who are motivated to do that will just add that to their preparation routine. Right? So you could come up with a game if it was challenging enough and if there were degrees of challenge that increased incrementally at the right rate, you could get people to transfer over to controllers that were completely ridiculous by our standards, just incredibly complex. You could get people to go back to the complexity of those two manual joysticks when they weren't properly aligned conceptually, um, just by giving them enough reward in gameplay, mm -hmm. right, to make it worth their learning how to do that. Um, and, and, and folks do that. People add uh, different options, controls to, to games all the time. Well, if you want to be impressed by absolute ludicrous control systems and people completely mastering games, there's a game, Zelda Breath of the Wild. And for the most part, people play that game and they go through it the way it's meant to be played. But there's this whole culture of speedrunners who figure out how to break the game in more and more and more interesting ways that require absolute mastery of the physics and mechanics in the game. And you see them like... There's simple things like um, there's these things called bomb jumps where they like have to float down and they have to like quickly drop a bomb but then quickly switch through a menu and quickly like, and you see them just fly through it. You don't know what happened, but they've they've pressed about ten different buttons and then boom, the game breaks and they fly off into a different direction. So yeah, I get that that leads into what you're saying there. There's, I, and it's interesting that people kept doing that. It's it's fun to see which games will end up having speed runs because there's still that it adds this whole other post-game element to games people love where they, they there's that challenge 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 and competition where they're trying to just break 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 and get faster and faster and faster and faster super super interesting to see how they how they figure all these these communities of figuring out different ways how they break things and um try to get the speed of completing the game down and down and down but that adds to your argument there of as long as there's a reason to keep engaged people will completely figure out these advanced communication methods with ultimately a computer. Um, they're just figuring out ways within that context how to communicate as fast as they can as possible to get what they want. And there are some people who will sit down and practice that for a very long time. That's, lovely. That's a great example. Uh, thanks for telling me about something I didn't know. I love it when that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of someone, you know, mastering guitar and getting a massively cool fast riff and whatnot but then they're doing it with video games and it's that kind of equivalent it's like um, eddie van halen 
being able to do distortion effects on his guitar without a distortion pedal, yeah. right? He just had that kind of mastery of the machine. Yeah. Um, or so he says, anyway, I don't know. I never held his guitar, but I've heard him say that. Yeah. Unless it was a deep fake. <laughs> so that leads to, I guess, okay. So then the ultimate ideal future that people are trying to get to at some point, God knows how it will get there or if it's, it's probably possible. I don't see any reason why the laws of physics would deny it. How do we reduce barriers more and more and more between the human and the computer, the digital world? We had that whole phase in the 90s. Uh, well, I mean, obviously we have Ivan Sutherland getting very, the basics of VR and also just generic human community interaction. Then we have the, the exciting wave in the 90s of virtual reality specifically. Um, but the technology not quite being there yet, but it influenced culture a lot about that time. And you have the Matrix, you even have children's throws like Digimon of people going into digital worlds and all that. And then it kind of lulls out. And now we're kind of back again with people thinking about actually getting in there, getting into the, di the digital world, in inverted commas. And ultimately, most sci-fi options of getting there are no interface. It's just some bit of sci-fi magic that just gets your consciousness into that digital space. The back yeah. of your head, yeah. put the helmet on. Yeah, something magical will happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason for that, right? The reason that it has to be a magical step in our fiction is because we don't have clear scientific steps to do it. We know that the brain is ridiculously complicated. And so trying to go through the brain or through the nervous system has to be magic, um, according to Clark's law, right? Um, the better question in my mind, contrary to popular belief, which I think you described really well, the better question I think is how can we make it possible for people to physically interact with the virtual world? Um, like I was saying before, using eye tracking is fine until somebody blinks or whoever was designing the algorithm didn't realize how eyes actually work, which has been a huge part of my career is dealing with issues that come up from the, uh, come out of the fact that a whole bunch of people approve something without considering how humans actually function. I didn't mention in the introduction my background in, in uh, biomechanics and ergonomics, but that's a big part of how I got here. Um, to be considered an expert in the field of how people and machines interact. I understand a little bit about the body and I understand a little bit about the mind. Um, and I ask these kinds of questions. So for me, it's very important that I not have telekinesis. If I had telekinesis, I would break things constantly. You'd also lose a lot of friends very quickly. If everyone could hear what you're thinking, actually thinking oh, about them. Not, 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 oh, sorry, telepathy. Yeah, telekinesis as in specifically moving things with your mind. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, telepathy, I, w I would never admit that I have it. <laughs> no, I mean never. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fine. I mean, yes, I don't know what you're thinking, Jamie. Um, so the problem with telekinesis is that you would have to focus all the time on doing nothing, right? Um, I think it was Theodore Sturgeon who wrote the story, uh, Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. 
and uh, it was about the ridiculous assumption that Superman and Lois Lane could have a, a, a love life. Uh, and for reasons I won't go into here, the, the title is leading you in that direction. One thing that, that raised for me as a kid reading that story was Superman would have to worry all the time about keeping his feet on the ground, not floating above it and not sinking through it. His body would be so dense and so strong that he would break every single thing he touches. He could as easily walk through a wall as bounce off of it, more easily, because bouncing off of it in a way that looks real, we all know who work in 3D, that's hard as hell to fake, right? So Superman has to live in a world where he's constantly worrying about that kind of stuff, and I'd love to see a comic or a movie that deals with that. There's definitely a few that have done, that have gone along stories with, yeah, superheroes having ridiculous strength and tragically Right. destroying everyone around him. But always in a really shallow way. What I want to, to see dealt with, like for a little while there was a writer called uh, Kurt, uh, no, an artist called Kurt Swan, an anchor called Murphy Anderson, and a writer called Elliot S. Magan, who were producing some cool Superman stories where they, they said, yeah, in the 60s they introduced his super thinking and his super brain. What if he really had that? What if everything he was doing was part of a huge long-term plan because he's that smart? I'd like to see something that deals with the physical aspects that way. He would have to be concentrating all the time. What I think happens when we create too many direct neurological links to the system, or the illusion of direct neurological links to the system, is that we create an environment in which you have to concentrate like Superman. If you can reach over intuitively and pick up the cup and put it on the different flat surface, that's brilliant. But if you have to be thinking all the time, deliberately, where is my hand now? What is it touching now? I can't feel it touching anything. Is it touching something now? Then having anything interact with your hand just by touch becomes extremely dangerous as you're moving through this environment. If you're stationary, you can limit it. In tests and trials and demos, you can limit it. Reach over here, pick this up, move it over there. Touch this window and drag it over here so it's no longer in the periphery of your attention. Surprise uh, fans, being off to the side does not mean it's in the periphery of your attention. Bring it into the center of your attention, focus on it here, deal with it here, and put it back. All of those things take some learning and some training. But doing that while you walk down the street is going to get people killed. To this day, people using their phones, should we wait for that sound to go away? Somebody's uncertain. Unfortunately, this recording room is right next to a toilet with a um, hair hand dryer yeah. right on the wall. One of those great Dyson yeah. hair uh, hand dryers literally on the wall behind yeah. me. The, on the recording studio. Yeah. So, one of those things we could get fixed, I guess. If, anyway. if the sponsors throw enough money at us. Um, and by sponsors, I mean all of you out there who want to throw money at us, except our students. Students don't get to throw money at us. Everyone else, or rather, to Jamie. Um, right, so um, I got so into the idea of Dyson hair dryers, I'm, uh, hand dryers, I'm thinking of the dynamics of that, and I got lost. Yeah, so we were talking about um, if you had too much control over the system right. and you didn't have, if right. there wasn't enough deliberate checks, then so, you could start. Yeah, and not just deliberate checks, but imagine if anything you brushed against became active, right? You would have to be really careful when you walk around. Um, 
that would take so much extra concentration that you would be putting everyone, including yourself, in danger by being out in the real world. Um, I, I walk with crutches these days, and every day I have to call out to people who are walking right at me on a narrow sidewalk looking at their phone. And we've had phones for a long time. Uh, often these are students who are doing this, who grew up with the phones, who've never been without one, and still they don't seem to understand that you cannot focus your attention on it when you're walking down the street. You really won't like the videos of people walking around with these Apple Vision OS's on. I absolutely <laughs> won't. I've been seeing people, when, I, when I, I lived in Silicon Valley, I saw people wearing different VR systems all the time. Um, when I was at a, a company, I will not name, though it rhymes with Facebook, um, I was involved in some testing of VR systems. And, uh, you know, really smart people doing really cool testing of products that absolutely should not come without a warning. Better yet, they should come with some kind of metal sticking out of them about eight feet in all directions that prevents them from getting through doors when they're wearing yeah. them. Yeah, so at least I, I will say at least Meta every time, because it's annoying, basically every time you set these things up, you've got to go through like a five-minute safety demonstration. Um, and because they really don't want to be sued. Yeah. They did have it with the Quest 1 and 2, but for some reason it's not as much with the 3, but if you walked out of your play space, it would just turn black. Um, yeah. They turned that off now. <laughs> you can just walk around with it. Um, but you can't really, you still can't really interact with anything when you do that. It will still give you the vision, but you, there's your window will, you got to actively make an effort for it to come back. Vision Pro, I believe, is less restrictive and it will just let you wander around anywhere. Until about, well, until just a few years ago, there was a period of about a decade when, according to the World Health Organization, the number one cause of fatalities, um, uh, other than natural fatalities, the cause of, uh, of uh, induced fatalities um, amongst people aged 16 to 25 around the world was distracted driving caused by smartphones. Right. Um, there's a couple of recent studies that have come out that have shown an absolutely horribly powerful correlation between the release of smartphones and the increase in self-harm and suicides among young people. The hardware and the software and the way that they combine with the human brain is killing people all the time. And the companies involved know that and should take responsibility. If they do or if they don't, that's up to them and their, their lawyers and their corporate whatevers. But every individual who uses this technology should be aware of it. Yeah. At this point, it, it's like using chat B, GPT on an assignment. I say to my students, I don't care if you use it, but if the quality is poor, you're responsible for poor quality. I also say to them, the School of Computing cares, follow their guidelines. The university, RGU cares, follow their guidelines. But I, I don't think the quality is going to help them, and I, I think it is going to hurt them until they develop mastery of the tool, yeah. right? And very few of them are interested in developing mastery when they're using it to cheat on assignments. No, yeah, is, you always just have a range of people who will take shortcuts anyway. Yeah. So the same thing is happening cognitively with the use of the phone. Everyone knows when you're driving a car, your phone should be turned off. Yeah. It should be in a different unavailable space. Everybody knows that. And if you ask them, they know that. If, they, if you ask them if it's safer or not, if they have it stuck under the seat that they can't reach, they know that.
but if it rings while they're driving, they look. If it makes that pinging sound that says it's time to scroll, all the brain chemicals get released telling you, scroll, 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 look now, scroll, scroll. And you do it because the part of your brain that is addicted to that, the part of your brain that reacts to that without thinking, reacts faster than the conscious warnings that you shouldn't do it. This is how brains are built. This is how humans function. We operate on at least two different layers of depth. Uh, the, the Nobel Prize winners, Kahneman and Tversky, um, say that it's two, thinking fast and slow in the famous book. Um, I believe it's three and that it's probably actually three that reflect five, but you'd have to read my upcoming papers to understand that. Fundamentally, the conscious part of your brain that understands math and safety warnings and things like that isn't in control of your body at almost any time at all. And the people who are building interfaces for us to use treat it as though that part of your body, that part of your brain is always in control. Until they accept that that's not the case, they'll be building products that will kill us by accident. Yes, and that actually gives me a great argument. I have a hunch, and it's be more of a hunch for me in general, that you have AR and VR. And for me, I've always thought VR is where we should pay attention to, because virtual reality, of course, being you're completely in a virtual space, and you should be fixed, and you're interacting with that virtual space. Augmented reality, the argument is, oh no, you should have the digital world with you the whole time whenever you walk around and do things. And now you've given me the solid argument that that's probably, that is a bad idea. Uh, because the real world is dangerous. The real world, if you're paying attention to some digital thing, you, you can, you, people are, we're, we have, we have weak meat bodies that can easily be injured or worse. Whereas if you're in a stuck space in virtual reality, yeah, sure, there's still all the problems that, of social media and all those potential problems. But at least physically, you know, unless you're banging your hand on the wall, you're, you're going to be physically safe. Um, so that's giving me a good argument of why, yeah. I'm, why I'm sticking to VR, <laughs> why I'm arguing VR is a direction, not augmented reality. I'm glad to hear that. Personally, I like both. I, I believe in both, I encourage both, but for very specific things. So I love the idea of augmented reality being something that helps me look things up when I need them. Yeah. The idea that I could walk down the street and be reminded, oh, you know that person. Or, oh, you wanted to stop at that shop. Hey, it's three o'clock, don't forget, it's three o'clock. And here's a reminder of why that's important. Those kinds of things appearing before me that's great. It's the design that matters. Exactly. Yeah. If they appear in the right way, if they appear in a way that's in line with what Mark Weiser called calm technology, right? So if they inform me without intruding, if they give me the option of paying attention to them when I'm ready to, not when they want me to, and of turning them off completely if I'm disinterested. Or right? recognizing when you shouldn't have attention at all. The yeah. system's smart enough to know you're driving a car. It's not even going to ever give you anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or if you're um, walking down a street, it, it should give you nothing except the little bit of a signal that says there's information here if you want to stop and think about it. Right. And that's the key. That's the way I talk about it when I'm teaching this to my students here is it should give you the option of accessing information. It shouldn't throw information at you. 
in current computer systems, not only do the computers constantly throw things at you because of a, a faulty initial concept of what a recommender system is, right? Recommender system has become a controller system instead. Not only do we do that, but with the increasing commercialization of the people using the products, right? Not of the products, but of the people using the products. Now you're getting ads and you're getting information you don't want intruding on your augmented reality. So for example, the augmented reality I use the most is Google Maps. I know it's not a fancy VR headset, sure. but I, I use it very often to check distances on things. I, I know for a fact, if I'm measuring the distance in walking from one place to another, I take the time that Google Maps gives me and I multiply it between two and four times. And then I've got an accurate sense of timing because I'm not a 22 year old recent college graduate in For me, I actually, I multiply it by 7.75. <laughs> nice. You run a lot? No, I just walk fast. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how it is when you get to 60 and walk yeah, on crutches. Um, the, the, <laughs> the key point is, and I, I think you've illustrated it nicely, or we have together, is that the information is there, but we have to modify it both in our own ways in order for it to be useful. People who take it as fact are making a mistake. They're misunderstanding the use case. It's like people who use Google to look up an answer when you're talking with them, right? And they say, oh, I can look that up and they get an answer from Google. But is it right or is it just what Google is telling you? Because what Google tells you is almost always not right. And we've, we've discussed that before with students and, and, uh, and together uh, without students. It, it's the assumption that technology serves you is a false assumption. The assumption that technology is designed to help you is a false assumption, and it's dangerous to make those assumptions. The, um, the fact that we can see this in something as unobtrusive as Google Maps that only lies to you when you ask it to tell you the truth uh, it means that it's going to be much more dangerous when people are wearing a headset 24 hours a day and walking out in the world and driving their cars or flying their jetpacks while wearing it unless we fundamentally change the precepts by which these things are designed. I think we have to go back to Mark Weiser's Calm Technology. I think we have to go to Baker and Hausen's peripheral interaction to better understand that, or my own uh, area of uh, anthropology-based computing. Those things will help designers and engineers and corporate executives maybe pull back the reins a little bit, those steering wheel-oriented reins a little bit, and slow down some of the things that they can do to keep them in line with the things that people can use safely. To be fair, I think at least there's some recognition of that in larger um, companies. Um, for example, I mean, Apple and Google now, their notification systems are getting much better in that. I say better than they were. So they, they, they will cl cluster things. They recognize every notification isn't important and you're, you're it's much easier to set up profiles now that don't interrupt you in specific use cases. It's very easy to change them. But the default um, is still bad, yeah. right? And it doesn't have to be. My paper about how to make pop-ups unobtrusive uh, was published 10 years ago, and it's got strong evidence in it. Um, uh, my paper about sound alerts, um, published uh, even earlier, um, showing actual brain activity that backs up what I said. And there's other papers that do the same. Golombic, for instance, and others have written about the fact that there is neurological 
data, there is neurophysiological data, and there's sociological data that backs all this stuff up. The fact that the companies are 10 years behind the curve in introducing a modicum of customization, I think is still them working in the wrong direction. It's not that they should make it easier to stop these things from killing you. They should make it so that they can't kill you and give you a little bit of leeway about how much they can interrupt you. Yeah, and that's where all that, that can go into a whole other conversation and discussion about where governments should probably step in because it's you're probably going to make less money if you can't interrupt anybody whenever you want. But then that's another pathway. I've got something just else I want to throw at you. Yeah, that, I'd just like to say one thing in line yeah. with it. Government maybe, but the corporations that are employing people who are using this software, I think have a duty to do something about it as well, not to avoid lawsuits from the people or something as logical as that, especially from an American perspective. We know for a fact that workplace interruptions are costing the vast majority of worker time with white collar workers. The average office worker, according to well-established studies from more than a decade ago, the average office worker works less than an hour of productive work a day because of interruptions from email and phone. Um, if you make your emails less interruptive by turning off pop-ups entirely. Yeah, I, my, mine are all, I have everything set to pull. No. But you have to do that. Yeah. If you were an employee of mine, I would say, are all of those turned off? Right? If I were an employee of yours, I'd say, hey, boss, I turned off all of the stuff that interrupts me during working hours. Right, just to let you know. Why on earth isn't every company that's using Microsoft products demanding that? Instead, they're just giving up employee hours. And the vast majority, seven out of eight employee hours are wasted because of interruptions from software and hardware and wetware. Anyway, so, sorry there to There we go, an economic reason to do as well, not just safety. So this is another thought. This is where I, I think this will come and people are already almost there. So when you have Snapchat and Instagram and all these different tools, people will record videos of themselves to other people, and there are very sophisticated AI algorithms that will make you look better or into anything you want. The way I see this going, it's going to be the other way around soon-ish, maybe in the next decade or so, where, oh, you don't like how your spouse looks? Don't, don't worry, you can change their filter on your headset what on earth is that going to do to humans where if you're walking around you can just have a complete let's say a disneyfication of almost living in a pixar world it's still reality the maps to reality pretty well but everyone looks perfect or cartoonish or whatever you want your world to be boom that's your world there are people in the world who wear small cameras on their shoes so they can film up people's clothing there are people in the world who hide cameras in public restrooms or private restrooms or shower rooms so that they can film people when they're uh, unknowingly exposing themselves to this. These people are jackasses. They are criminals. They are horrible by almost every measure of human decency across almost every culture that's ever existed. And they still do that. I think that what you're talking about is just going to expand our definition of what is indecent. If you believe it's appropriate to talk with someone while seeing someone else in their place, then you're a jackass. If you want to show someone else in your own place, that's a different kind of problem. Mm -hmm. But if you're deliberately 
ignoring who and what someone is in order to make them fit your conscripted idea of what someone should be. That's, that's horrible. That's just horrible. Yeah. I, I don't I don't disagree. I'm just speculating of where because it's possible. It is. It's definitely possible. We'll, we'll, it won't take much to get there um, no, from what we've already got. If you're willing to use the technology that currently exists and exert yeah. a few hundred hours of programming time, I think you could probably break it yourself. Yeah. And, I just don't think you should. Yeah. No, and then I guess a system which you could imagine, though, at least, is then, yeah, okay, this is your own avatar as you change your own, however everyone else is going to perceive you. Now, we do that anyway in video games a lot, and people enjoy that a lot. And that, I don't know, I, I would need to look into the literature of how good or bad it is for people, but I know from at least anecdotal evidence <laughs> that a lot of people enjoy that. They like to go into different worlds and be something completely different. I think it's fantastic therapeutically, if you'll let me put on my psychologist hat for a minute. It's fantastic therapeutically for people to be able to go and have exciting interactions with other people, like exciting uh, heart rate increasing interactions with other people um, in a different persona. I think it's fantastic. You can be someone else, you can do things that don't come back on you in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and yet you can revisit the best of them with your colleagues once you're done or your friends or by yourself, thinking back on the great gameplay moments that this other you, this persona did. That's wonderful. Uh, everybody should experience that. I, I used to play D&D &D as a kid. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the best thing in the world to be able to step out of yourself and do that. I think any therapist would agree with that, which means I'm probably wrong, and there will be therapists who see this little video clip and say, oh, what an idiot. Um, yes, yes I am. Um, that doesn't mean that I think that those personas should replace you in day-to-day -day life. I'm very happy to play a game with Thraxar, the level 17 barbarian, uh, by my side, I absolutely do not want to be sitting in a restaurant trying to enjoy hors d'oeuvres with my date when Thraxar the Barbarian walks in. Right? Thraxar has to learn when to be barbaric and when not to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real world is... I probably shouldn't let go of the real world yet. Um, or yeah. mix the two completely. Again, so that's where mixed reality and augmented reality is like there should be clear confines of what we do with it. Absolutely. That's something I don't think people are seriously talking about I, I as in agree. keeping the digital digital world specifically separate from the real world in specific well-defined ways. And I think I think characterization is is one there. Uh, yeah, because we don't we don't let actors. Well, I mean, this is why you have some actors that like to go method, and then it's a little bit weird for everyone else. It can be work great in the context of they're shooting a film and they're going to be a better actor for the film but if they continue that for the rest of their lives then it's a little bit odd and then you become that person whatever but sure. we don't we probably don't want a world where everyone's or do we i don't know but then yeah we do if, if the character that they are portraying and that they get lost in is a philanthropist who loves everyone on earth more than themselves and cares for others and does acts of kindness at every extent yes please i'd like to see seven or eight billion of us try that. But if there are other motivations involved that will supersede 
their other otherwise um, acceptable behavior than no. Uh, Dave Chappelle tells a story about wanting to meet Jim Carrey and being so excited because he just loves the guy. The guy's such a great comedian, big fan. When they were introduced to each other, when the meeting finally happened, Carrey was doing method acting uh, for the, the role in uh, The Man in the Moon. Um, and he was Andy Kaufman. He wasn't Jim Carrey, right? Chappelle describes it brilliantly, and uh, this is a lovely case for augmented reality. Please go and watch the video of him describing that. It's quite funny and sad at the same time. Um, the point is, it, what you're saying is backed up by many other people, even the occasional celebrity. Yeah, yeah. Right? Indulging in the character too much. and then, But then I guess, at least if it's, say, visual augmentation, we do that anyway as humans. We want, And we even change personas anyway quite a lot as well. You're a different person when you talk to your spouse as opposed to your children, as opposed to your... Um, when I'm a lecturer, I'm a different persona like we have different personas that we slip into depending on the context but I, sure there might be a there's always a story through thread of who you are but i can be a very different person in different contexts sometimes in the stories shiva is a nurturer and sometimes shiva is the destroyer of worlds and it depends on the mantle that shiva is wearing and it's the same for all of us um, i forget who it was and that's embarrassing too but we are multitudes Right, we are many, many people at once. That's part of being a person, but that doesn't mean that you should stop being the other ones while you're being one. When you are being a dad to your children, a loving, caring dad to your children, you should still be the man who is a passionate lover of your spouse. Right, you should still be the man who is a, a, a grateful caretaker for elderly grandparents and a considerate and intelligent uh, lecturer for your students. Don't let those overlap, control them yourself. But I think you would be better at all of them, or rather you would be better at each of them, if to some degree you keep all of them in mind. For sure, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And I think that's how we all live our lives anyway. But my, so. my point being is that we, we can modulate and fluctuate a little bit. And then one, the, my other point I was getting to is at least visually, we do change our appearance for different context scenarios. We have clothes, it's, we augment clothes for various different reasons. Um, you go to a funeral, you're a specific attire to fit into a, a whole meaningful thought practice behind it. Sometimes it's completely functional, but a lot of it is also communication to other human beings. 100%. That's, that's why we uh, adjust our appearance day to day, or at least it should be why. There's lots of other reasons. Uh, we do it for virtue signaling. We do it for uh, signaling membership in certain uh, moieties or, or uh, societies or subcultures. Um, if you're wearing Doc Martin uh, lace, uh, high lace-up boots, that used to mean something 40 years ago. It means something different now, but in both cases, there is strong meaning attached to it. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, so, so. To, to riff on this point in thinking about modulation of visuals to personify whatever you want with whatever meaning you want. Turns out when you put people, conscious human beings, in a complete virtual space where they can do whatever the hell they want, you end up with VR chat. And if you ever go into VR chat, it is hyper stimulus, crazy, ridiculous anime figures mostly all over the place. 
or people just completely embodying a fictional character of some sort. You'll see superheroes or video game characters wandering around. But a lot of the interesting stuff is actually people completely creating custom things. And it's, you know, hyper-stimulus. A lot of it is hyper-stimulus. It's like taking human forms, exaggerating them in any ways you can, I assume you can probably imagine, and super hyper-colorful skin glowing and flowing and all, all this super interesting weird things. And that it's interesting that that space is a still a human consciousness, but in a detachment from physical restraints of clothes and whatnot and they can just literally become whatever um i think you were talking was was it you were mentioning that you had a, a colleague who was doing some sort of artistic um thing in vr and they, yes. they were yes. trying to be clouds. for decades yeah yeah, yeah. If, if you're talking about the thing i think you're talking about that was uh my uh my old friend liz solo who's a punk uh in newfoundland who created a virtual environment a couple of decades ago. and uh, It's been populated by artists ever since, doing incredible, wonderful, communicative things. I haven't been there in a very long time, but the last time I was there, one of the issues she was dealing with really masterfully was policing, mm -hmm. so that it didn't become a place where people were made uncomfortable in ways that she was uncomfortable with. She wanted people, uh, artists specifically, to push boundaries but that doesn't mean, yeah. right, being horrible. It just means pushing boundaries. Um, this is one of my concerns about these things. Uh, social behavior has declined, and it's it's easy for folks to lose sight of that or to make it a soapbox issue. But social interactions have become less polite over the last couple of decades. Uh, people have become more confrontational, especially in the northern half of the world, and especially in the western half of the northern half of the world. People are... Um, are they in person or is it more in our digital spaces? In person, it's happened, yeah. and that's my concern. We could see decades ago that this was happening in uh, the web, that anonymity gave people permission to be less concerned about the social constraints of interaction. And some folks went full-fledged, horrible on it, and others didn't. Lately, there's talk that the social media algorithms feeding you what they think you want so you'll spend more time scrolling have created further extreme versions of that. Right? It's just uh, inter, uh, overlapping wave patterns, right? Of course, it's going to create extreme distinction. That's just math. Um, so it's entirely predictable for the companies that have caused it. But the effect of that on social behavior IRL has been a decrease in social mores and spikes of extremist behavior more than before. So um, I don't have the data to prove that this is true in terms of people attacking others, but I believe that it's true. So I believe the data is there. I do have the data to prove, not my own, other people's data, to prove that people harming themselves has increased. There's a caveat to that um, narrative now um, that it's because people are getting siloed and that's getting pushing towards extremism. There's, um, I don't know who's looked into this specifically. I learned it from a Kruitzeg, Kruitzeg video, however you've been around to that on YouTube. Um, uh, the argument more now is it's actually not the case. We're actually exposed to more opinions than ever. But the human reaction is to do categorization of us and them. 
So because you're exposed to more and more and more different types of people, you're like, they're not me, they're not me, they're not me, they're not me. So then you actually end up trying to find who are you more and you otherize the other people because you're exposed to them more and you don't have a relationship with them or anything. Um, so in the example that they give is at least in small towns and communities, you all, sure, someone might be a little bit different to you, but you all have a narrative like, oh, but we are this family, a name behind our lives, or we are this tribe, or we are this. So you always have a, a narrative thread. And then even in, as we grew in civilization and your networks are bigger and you have larger towns, it's like, well, we have the football team. Oh, well, I'm from here, I'm from here, I have that. But then we're in the digital space. It's just lots of varying different, and there's no, there's these, there's these narrative tools that we have like nationality, race, culture, blah, 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 just to, to help categorize us and them. And the argument now is that it's actually, and it's actually trackable. You, you are exposed to more I, opinions. I, I agree from that perspective exactly with what you're saying. The problem is that that's not the perspective I was speaking from. Sure. So uh, if you take a look at people who uh, grew up in a small town 200 years ago, the odds are they would only meet one or two people in their lives who weren't from that small town. So um, increased communication, increased potential for communication, even before the internet age, exponentially increased their exposure to different ideas and different people. Absolutely. And this continues in the internet age. The fact that you can uh, accidentally or intentionally watch a newscast in French with English subtitles gives you the chance of seeing the same world news you already watched from a completely different perspective. That kind of thing is absolutely true. You are aware that there are political parties you disagree with and social parties that you disagree with and occasionally a house party you disagree with. You're aware that these things are going on. But the medium through which you perceive them does most of that filtering for you. So if you're on Facebook and you're being exposed to a thousand ideas, almost all of them are being exposed to you by people who are already on your short list of contacts, who are communicating with you about how terrible this is and how other these groups are already. So in, in human social consciousness, there's a limit to how many people you can think of as, as being- What's that number? Yeah. Someone's name number. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a limit to how many people you can think of as being part of your network, yeah. right? And the folks within that number, and it's a much smaller number that you actively consider, not that you can conceptualize of, but that you actually consider day to day. Oh, well, Fred told me the other day, and it, you know, that can mean something very weak or that can mean something very strong. And for the, the people who are really followers of what Fred has to say, it stops being Fred's told me something the other day and it starts being something that you know innately. Those people are doing all of that filtering for you. And if you spend any time in the kind of communities you're describing or in any other online community, you'll see that there is a tendency for people to go towards the most generic, basic, fundamental splits as quickly as possible. That othering is pre-filtration that's already done. So I, I would say that the, the argument you're making is true from one perspective, but I think in practical terms in the internet, the opposite is true. I think most of us are exposed to a whole lot of stuff filtered by a very small number of ideas. Mm. This is my concern with all of the technology we've been talking about. When the possibility of what augmented reality could be 
is filtered through the commercial concerns of a few billionaires, when the possibility of what virtual reality could be is focused through the monoculture of a Silicon Valley-based company, um, or uh, Beijing, or, tai or, or Taiwan, or, or uh, Shanghai-based company, when it's... It's, also, it's not just the companies, it's also the business models they employ. The business model is huge. The cultural cues and standards of the people working in that business, if they don't have a diverse crowd around them to challenge them on that successfully, right? Then you end up with these very narrow focuses, like the uh, the, the sexist uh, hiring AI at Amazon, like the uh, racist uh, facial recognition software almost everywhere. Um, these racial biases, these cultural biases, these genderist biases, these class biases, all of these things are being built into software unwittingly because the teams building them are unwittingly focused in that way. What we have to do is we have to inverse, if you will, or invert the kind of algorithms that are causing this extremism by trying to only feed you stuff you're already going to agree with and instead make it when you go on social media, you only see stuff that you disagree with. I mean, I worry there actually is that. Um, yeah, but not through the filter yeah. of the people who are telling you why you should disagree. No, I'm, no. Um, I, again, from at least first-hand experience, if I, if I scroll through my Facebook, I will quite often be just showing wild things or like whatever. Right. Um, that is how they, you don't often go to Facebook, no, right? No. This is why. So the algorithm is still trying to figure out which stream to start deflecting you along. So the stuff that you like is going to tell it, focus more on this extreme area. But it has to feed you extremes in order to feed you into an extreme. Yeah. And yeah. It just has to feed you a variety. It depends. This is interesting. Because I still use it because I have to every now and then because I promote a lot of things. And it's very useful for promotion of local community stuff. It's actually still, it's actually the best tool right now to do that. I wouldn't tell um, anyone to not use Facebook, yeah. except all of you don't no, use Facebook. It's, it's actually, to be fair, it is literally the best tool for online local communities at the moment. It's, um, it's, it's I, I mean, way. physically local. Yeah, it's great. Um, I've known lots of people who use it that way. Yeah. Since I worked there, I don't use it at all. No, but um, then you have different tools that we're going into social media. But you have something like, uh, for me, X, whatever, Shitter. formerly known as Twitter. Uh, it, it's completely wild chaos now. I go on and it only takes two posts to go like, I'm out of here. For me, it's just ridiculous instagram works for me i, I like it it it's probably because the algorithms figured me out it, it shows me a lot of cool art of really cool digital artists and that, that's the majority of what i see way, yeah and whatever yeah and it does seem to me that of <laughs> i don't want to be giving too much credit to meta but it does seem to me they actually look they're there's still a million faults with them. But it does seem to me, at least they obviously care a bit more than Elon Musk. <laughs> well, um, don't forget the con uh, the conditions under which they acquired that product, right? They were supposed to maintain it as it was and treat the uh, the membership the same way that they were being they were treated before. To do that with Oculus as well. Yeah. And they violated both of those contracts. Um, so, um, again, I'd, I'd love it 
if Meta were to clean up its act ethically, I'd love that. I think it would be good for the world. But um, interestingly, I've um, I don't expect a quick side tangent of Meta. They they have a, the, some of the best designers in the world for sure. The problem when you're on Facebook is the design is made to show you adverts, and because the design is that, it can be frustrating and clunky and horrible. They have a developer platform where it's like workplace developer platform that I saw for the first time recently and where they don't have incentive of ads. It's just a really nice <laughs> system. Um, and it's like, oh, this is what, I remember when Facebook used to be that before the ads came in. It was like all they were actually caring about was making an interface and not trying to shove ads down your face every single second. Yeah, I, I also have fond memories of being able to communicate with friends and family uh, who I hadn't seen uh, across space and time. I think that's that's wonderful. And I agree that the intrusive advertising, hidden as other things and subliminalized as much as possible is an evil. Um, but that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is the unethical way they've treated people that has caused uh, children to self-harm, that has caused adults to self-harm, that has uh, popularized uh, brutalist behavior in so many different ways made visible horrible behavior in so many different ways. And I've heard the arguments that they can't police all of it. But if you had a yard full of dogs and a small percentage of them were biting everyone who went by your house, the police wouldn't say, nice job trying to control those dogs. They'd say, if you can't control the 1% that's being violent, then we're going to take away all of them. And that's what I think has to happen. If, if not explicitly, then in some other way, these companies have to be held accountable for the worst behavior they are facilitating, the same way that you or I would be held accountable for the worst behavior we are facilitating. And I love the fact that we've gone all the way around to social media, but I just want to say that's the result of talking about HCI. Human-computer interaction isn't just the design of interfaces, it's all of the interaction we do with and through computerized technology. Absolutely, and we're talking about potential interactions with whole virtual worlds. I mean, when I'm talking about VR, you're, we're really only talking about a, a three-dimensional representation of, of a world, but we're already doing that anyway. It's just a it's world, in inverted commas, is just a social social network. It, it's still a world of sorts, it's still a place with humans communicating within it and the interfaces are slabs in our pockets. Um, if you don't mind me saying something that I've become rather known for saying, uh, I think it's time now to drag it out. Our bodies are the interface with which we deal with the computerized technology. Our bodies are the interface with which we deal with the world. The sensory information you get from the world around you is in transmission almost no different from the sensory information you get from a device. So I don't think that uh, I don't think that there's a big difference between virtual reality and reality in terms of the processing that goes on in order to accept it. I, I'm, I'm behind you on that. Um, yeah, I, all of this for us right now is a simulation of a completely underlying reality that we really have no grasp of. Um, there are wavelengths of light flying through here that we can't perceive. There are fields of energy that we can't even comprehend. Uh, just magnetism, I have no 
sense of magnetism in my body, for example. What we do uh, is just very small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so in that sense, all of this is what we do anyway. And then sure, the whole, everything that we have words or I have a word for this, but it's that word is a concept in itself. And all of social media is the exact same as a concept of streams of data that come in. So yeah, I completely, completely agree to, with you there. Um, so yeah, good, good, good for me at least to conceptualize there in my mind, because um, it's sometimes easy to think that it's its own different place. But uh, yeah, sure, it's almost just as real as everything else. But there is an easy way to turn it off. You just turn your phone off. In terms of that network, yes. In terms of the other networks we use and that we become accustomed to, it's much harder. You turn your phone off, you still have a plan of when you're going to turn it back on. I, I know very, very few people in the world, uh, and I know quite a few people, but I know very, very few who turned off their phone without the plan to turn it on, uh, on a regular basis or at all. I only know a couple of people who have had smartphones, used them every day, and then decided I will never use a smartphone again. Um, I know almost no one who's entirely removed from the internet. I know very few people who are entirely removed from social media. Um, these are things we could turn off, but we don't, in the same way that all of us could give up eating meat and help save the planet that way, uh, because it would be great for carbon emissions, um, but we don't. All of us could eat only local food and it would be great for carbon emissions, but we don't. Um, th there's a whole lot of things we could do. We could all become more considerate of the most needy in our community, right? But we don't. The logical things we should do in order to live better lives are not the things we do because the conscious, thinking, thoughtful, reading, math-using part of our brain is not the part that's in charge of our bodies. Yeah, the, um, the term I like best to describe all that is our evolutionary baggage. <laughs> I call it the protoprosimian living in our head. Yeah. And uh, I agree. That bit of evolutionary baggage is... Well, it, it's like the tail wagging the dog. It's the it's the baggage pulling the person along with it. So, I mean, well, I'm going to try and wrap it up in a bow. As for the future of human-computer interaction, interface, us, our conscious brains interfacing with these whole new platforms and systems that we're developing, who knows? It's going to be a wild, wild west. It's going to change us as much as we change it. Hopefully, we can be cognizant of how it's changing us and course correct when it's going down the wrong pathways and design better systems so that when we, <laughs> if one day we're fully in there in a completely new digital world of sorts that is as real and interesting as this one or more real and interesting, we're doing it for the betterment of conscious experience and having less suffering overall. Now, that's okay, let me not go down a pathway of just sticking your headsets on to inject dopamine into you. Now we're going into Brave New World, avoiding Brave New World in the best way <laughs> possible, um, where we're still looking after the planet and everything else, I guess. If, if I could, I think we haven't disagreed much, no. and so I'm going to disagree with you at the end here now. Go for it. Um, to me, the future of VR and AR isn't interacting consciously. To me, the future is interacting unconsciously. When these systems are designed to support us unconsciously in ways that we can then consciously decide to use or not use, uh, 
right? So not making us part of their unconscious structure, but making them part of our unconscious structure. Then they will be tools that can be used by all of humanity, but not until then. Because we live in the real world, like you were saying, and like you said, the real world is dangerous. So anything that's making demands of our conscious attention is going to get us killed. Yes. I would disagree with that. For some reason, I'm... I'm yeah, I tried so hard to disagree with you. <laughs> for some reason, that thought, though, I'm drawn to think of um, Noah Yuval Harris, who put a spin on wheat and saying that wheat cultivated us. Um, we, we do, if you looked at it from an abstract level of space, you'd be like, these apes are doing a lot to help this version of grass grow all over its planet. Yeah, um, a great cartoon from the 1950s that did the same thing yeah. with cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really and then, so this, this whole digital world that we're creating and now things that start talking back to us, are we, are we there? Anyway, that we that kind of could be a whole other. Um, we'll 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 leave that to be continued. Excellent. I think um, we've uh, we've hit on a bunch of cool things that yeah, could come up absolutely. later, and I hope we have a chance to do it. For sure, for sure. If you've been here for this long, thank you, thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, we were going to do this either way. Me and John sit down and talk like this either way. We thought we might as well record it. If you found it interesting. Please let us know um, because we'd like to hear that. And if there's any ways you think we can improve it, also please let us know. We um, we had uh, another one before which didn't record, but um, the summary of that one was iterative feedback is good. So if you have any feedback, please, please do let us know. Yeah, it, it, please, even if you didn't enjoy this, that's yes. also iterative feedback and we'd like that. Yes. Um, as uh, as uh, the Austrian psychologist Viktor Frankl said, uh, you can't control what happens to you in the real world, but you can control how you respond to it. So if if you want to give us some feedback that we can respond to... Yeah, we, we, can, we can choose to listen to it or not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye.